The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. If you would take your Bibles and look with me at Exodus chapter 14, we'll continue looking at this marvelous example of God's saving power. One of my uh, good friends in ministry, uh, Ronnie Stevens, uh, said something that was very insightful, and I've thought about it um, a lot since he, I first heard it a year ago in September, but uh, I think it's just so true. Some people think, said Ronnie Stevens, some people think that the gospel was given uh, to us so that we might be able to understand the world around us, but actually the opposite is true. The world around us is given so that we might understand the gospel. Now this is a very interesting perspective, isn't it? Because I would actually extend it also to the unfolding of human history. I believe that human history has unfolded in a way that is, that is conducive to or enables us to understand the gospel. And you know, it's interesting how people, uh, liberal scholars, will, will lampoon certain parts of the Old Testament because they line up so clearly with the gospel and with other things that they say it must be uh, a metaphor or a myth or something. Like, for example, the book of Jonah, which just seems to read to some people like a parable or something because it just lines up so clearly with the message of Israel needing to be a light to the Gentiles. Well, could it be that God does both? That he actually works through history in such a way that there are spiritual lessons that you can get out of it. Others have seen in Genesis chapter 1, for example, the so-called framework hypothesis um, that uh, the creation days, day 1, 2, and 3, uh, line up with God orga organizing um, uh, realms where there would be these in days 4, 5, and 6 kings that kind of rule in those realms. And they see a symmetry there, and you know, I see it too. But they go on to say that, therefore, there's not a chronological account of creation given there in those six days. And I think, how could that possibly follow? Could it be that God does both? Could it be that he works actually through the six days of creation to give a perfect order and symmetry? That he can do both? That he actually plays history like a, like a virtuoso violin player plays a Stradivarius, a, a magnificent piece. And that God is able to do this with history, I think he does. And I think that the Exodus is a great example of this, isn't it? I mean, when I look at the history of the Exodus, I don't say this is a myth, this is a spiritual story that came in much later, talking about liberation from forces of oppression and all this. No, I think it actually happened. And I think that it actually happened in such a way that there are spiritual lessons that talk about liberation from forces of oppression. Even worse, from uh, liberation from demonic force of evil and from slavery to sin itself. God does both. And so when I read Exodus 14, I think about two things. I think about the actual history of it. I think that there was a place and a time in which this actually occurred, just as it's written here in the Bible. But then I go beyond it and say, why did he do it? And I think it's that he would make a great name for himself and that we might understand our own salvation. These things were written in the past so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so therefore, I gain hope in reference to my own salvation that all of the bitter and vicious enemies of my soul will someday lie dead on the shore, as it were. They're all going to perish. 
these Egyptians that you see here, you will never see them again. Well, I look forward to that day when the enemies of my soul are washed up on the shore of time and I don't have to see them anymore when they're gone forever. And in no way do I think because that's going to happen in the future spiritually that it didn't happen physically and historically in the past. I think that the two are absolutely uh, possible, that God, not only possible, but that God has in fact done this. We uh, worship the God of history. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection bodily from the grave are historical events. We feel that if they were not historical, we would have no faith at all. We would be wasting our time going out and sharing the gospel based on a myth or a story. And just because the gospel lines up with the deepest aspirations of your soul doesn't mean it's not true. What a cynical thing to say. I think God is a good God and therefore his gospel does in fact line up with the deepest aspirations of my soul. Isn't that wonderful? People say, oh, you just want the gospel to be true and therefore it's true. No, I want the gospel to be true and it is true. That's how I look at it. And so we're looking today at a historical account of something that actually happened at one point in time. And it didn't need to happen 200 years uh, later and, and uh, another 150. God only had to do it once, only one time, and then write it down in Scripture for us to read about it. And so that's what's happened. We have this account. Now, we began looking at it last week, and we saw in verses 1 through 4 God's poor generalship. You could put that in quotations, God's poor generalship. God led them in a place that no wise and shrewd general would ever have done with a massive army of people. In verse 1 through 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back in a camp near Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. A Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. Isn't this a marvelous thing that God is willing to pour out the lives of Pharaoh or the Egyptians and their army that he might gain glory for himself? In God's own way of thinking, his glory was more important than the lives of those, uh, those Egyptian persecutors, those that were following God's people. But it's interesting, it says at the end here that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. There's a great prophecy in Isaiah how Egypt will at some point turn to the Lord and how also Moab and Ammon and all of these Gentile nations surrounding will know that he is the Lord because God has concern for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so his eye is on the world, but he does it by glorifying himself. We've already seen that. So God's strange, or we could say poor generalship. It's not poor at all, frankly. God just has a different goal in mind. His goal is to put Israel in such a place that they cannot escape. And his goal is to lure uh, Pharaoh into pursuing so that he may gain glory for himself. And so it's actually brilliant generalship. He's just going at it a different way than we ever would have. So it's a strange decision. And then we see even more, I think, strange, or even stranger, is Pharaoh's decision to pursue. Now you have to see this in historical context. There have already, already been ten plagues of devastating proportion that have touched every area of the Egyptian life except one touched every area, every home. There was not a home without someone dead after that tenth plague. And so every area, their, their flocks and their herds and their crops and their water and their life in every way has been ripped to shreds by these ten plagues. 
Every home had a firstborn dead. Every area of Egyptian life touched except one, and that was Pharaoh's pride and joy, his army, and his 600 choice chariots, and all of his lesser chariots, and all of his cavalry, and all of his foot soldiers, an army suitable to overwhelm a mass of over two million Israelites. This was a massive army, a powerful army, and the most powerful that there was, and God intended to crush it for his own glory. But Pharaoh had to be enticed into pursuing, and it's amazing that he does. We see the hardness then of human hearts. We see the hardness and the pride and how apart from God's redeeming grace, it doesn't matter how many strokes we might get from the Lord. It doesn't matter how much chastening. It doesn't matter how much harsh uh, treatment. We will never, never turn to the Lord if he does not renew us from within. We will only become harder. We will only dig in our heels even more. Until God renews us from within, until we are born again by the Spirit, we will not repent. And so Pharaoh decides to pursue. In verse 5 through 8, it says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the, Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. And so we've seen this. We've seen God's strange generalship. We've seen, secondly, Pharaoh's poor decision or strange decision to pursue. And the hardening of God, hardening of his heart so that he would pursue. There was no, nothing left to chance here. He wanted him to pursue so that in the end there would be a great display, a final crushing of Pharaoh, who represents really the devil and his army representing the demons and all of our sins and all of the spiritual force of evil that are against us. God wants a full display of his power over evil, and he's going to have it. And so out they come. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so out he goes, and he's going to pursue. Now in verses 9 through 12, we see a third surprising aspect of this account, and that is the Israelites' faithless terror. The Israelites' faithless terror. This is a third surprising aspect of Exodus 14. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi Hahiroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You see, the third amazing feature of this account is Israel's faithless unbelief. Their terror here. In the face of impending doom, they had forgotten the power and might of God. After an incredible display, ten plagues, the tenth plague being the most devastating of all, and they are in fact en route to the promised land. They have moved out already, it's already occurred, and only God could do this. They are so quickly terrified, they are so quickly faithless, so quickly turning their back on God. Israel had little faith. And I would go so far as to say most in Israel had no faith at all. 
And it's going to become clear over the next uh, pages of the account as you go on, as they worship the, the golden calf and as they complain about the lack of food and the lack of water, and as they go right up to the lip, right up to the edge of the Jordan and refuse to enter the promised land, they become the very picture of unbelief, the very picture of hardness and of wickedness and sin. So really Israel is no better in one sense. And if God again does not work faith in our hearts, we have none. And again, it doesn't matter all that God does for us. We will quickly turn away if God does not sustain us. Do you realize that God is sustaining your faith every day of your life? I meditated on this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, the uh, greeting in which it says in a very common way, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever read that and then just skipped it and read one on to the next verse? Oh, there it is again, that verse, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You know something? You need grace today. You need grace to you today. You need the grace that's given by reading Ephesians. You need the grace that's given by reading Philippians. You need grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. You need it every day because God withholds his grace. If he withholds his grace, your faith will shrivel and die. He sustains grace every moment. And I can show it to you in Scripture. Grace is a gift from God in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And not just the first time you get it, but every day you walk in it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And so God is going to sustain your faith. But here we have an example, and a tragic one, of faithlessness. And they're very cynical, aren't they? Is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? The Egyptians specialized in graves. And as a matter of fact, I think that the Israelites knew that better than anyone because they built a lot of them. So they're very cynical here. They're very edgy with Moses. Is it because there were not enough graves? They buried a lot of their ancestors in those graves or while they were building those graves. There's a cynicism here, an irony. It's also a prime example, I think, here of looking backward, of looking backward. You know, Jesus said in Luke 9:62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What an odd picture, you know, you've got your hand on the plow and you're looking the other way. There's no way you can plow straight. But, but what is Jesus talking about? He's saying looking back at your former way of life with longing eyes. Looking back for the days before you knew Christ. Looking back for the days when you were, when you had, so you thought, the freedom to live however you chose without the burden of concern over God's laws and what he would think, without wondering about Judgment Day and without concern for conscience. The days of freedom, so you thought. Jesus said, if that's the way you think, you're not fit for, this, for service in the kingdom of God. We can't look back. We have to look only ahead. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what is ahead. We're not thinking about our old way of life in Egypt. And Jesus said in a, a very short and pithy way in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What, what's going on with Lot's wife? Well, she looked back. She looked back. She was commanded not to. But she looked back. And you know, she looked back with unbelief. That's why she looked. That's what God was judging there. It wasn't just the backward glance. It was the backward longing glance that was being judged there. A yearning for the old days in Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, what a tragic picture there. And she gets turned into a pillar of salt. We don't look back for those old days in Sodom and Gomorrah and long for them. Oh, we've had enough of those days. It says in Peter, you've already spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
We've spent enough time doing that. We don't need to do that anymore. And so here is Israel with their backs up against the Red Sea with the Egyptian army pressing down on them and they want to go home. They want to go back. And home is servitude. It's bond. It's slavery. And not only uh, physical but also in idolatry because they worship the Egyptian gods there. They were looking backward. And that's a tragic thing. It reminds me also of Numbers 11, 4 through 6. It was not the last time the Israelites would look backward. Listen to this one. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Will we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost? Oh, those were the days. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, uh, the onions, and oh, that garlic. You remember those days? And all of it free of charge. Uh, what were they forgetting? Uh, what was their lifestyle like? You know, oh, we forgot. We were slaves in Egypt. What do you mean at no cost? Well, our master had paid for everything. Wasn't that sweet of them? Meanwhile, we worked 18-hour days with no straw to make the bricks. Oh, we forgot that, what it was like. But they were looking back with longing eyes. <laughs> but now, it says in Numbers 11:6, we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. A daily miracle from God, and they despised it. And it's their own fault, too. You know, if they had just entered the promised land, they would have eaten manna a lot shorter amount of time. Amen? So when God says, enter the promised land, maybe you should enter the promised land and eat the harvest from, from crops you didn't plant and live in houses you didn't build and go in when God says to go in. Uh, other than that, you may be eating 40 years of manna. And then when you complain, God says, you want meat to eat? I'll give you meat to eat. But that's another story for another day. In verses 13 and 14, we see Moses' faith-filled response. The people are crumbling. They need a leader, and Moses is the leader. And this is such an important lesson. Leadership. There's a human aspect here to the story, isn't there? Moses was God's man at that moment. And, and it's interesting how God commands Moses to stretch out his staff over the Red Sea. The staff was a symbol of Moses' leadership. It was a physical thing, that staff, and it had been used by God to do all of these uh, great plagues in Egypt. God did not want to entice the people into a magical view of Moses or of his staff, not at all. But I think he wanted them to think of Moses as their leader. They needed a leader at that moment, and Moses stood in the gap, and he was the leader. In verse 13 and 14, it says, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Isn't that a sweet verse? I just can't say that enough. Especially when I transfer it to the spiritual realities in my life. The temptations you see today, there will come a time you will never see them again. They are the enemies of your soul. And at that point, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Isn't that wonderful? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the heavens, I will be exalted on the earth. I am God and there is no other. I am the Lord and there is none like me. My hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? I am the sovereign king. Just stand firm and you will see. Now, Moses himself, I think, had his moments of doubt and fear. He was a man just like anyone else. If you look at verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? That's very interesting, isn't it? So Moses, I think, had his own moments. 
But he also knew what God was doing and he stood firm. And it's interesting how he says in verse 15, why are you crying out to me? There comes a time when you pray and then there comes a time when it's time to act, when it's time to move. And so he's saying, in effect, don't cry out to me any longer. We have prayed, you have prayed, the time has come to move. Now I believe that the, the key command or transferable concept for us is this. We need only to stand firm and watch what God will do. We are addicted to a dangerous drug called self-reliance. And it's incredible what it takes to get us off of that addiction. It is remarkable to me how enticing it is for us to turn to ourselves and our own resources in any and every situation. And that is why we are so quickly uh, swept away when the trial comes. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to get over. And I think the measure of the difficulty is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. We've talked about this before, but the Apostle said, Apostle Paul said, we do not want you to be ignorant about the trial we face in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that we might no longer rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, it's one of the scariest things in my life to think if the Apostle Paul, that godly man, that man filled with faith, needed something like that to strip him of his self-reliance, what must I need? And when is it coming on me? <laughs> this is the kind of enticing that we have all the time. Is it not true for yourself? Look, whenever you have an extraordinary trial, is not your first reaction to look inward for the resources? Whether it's a financial trial, or a trial of health, or of some other issue you're facing, employment, anything, to look in and see whether you have enough to pay the bill. And God is trying to wean us off that. And so he brought the Israelites right to the edge of the sea so that he might teach them to no longer rely on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he was doing the same for Moses. God is going to lead you, I believe, if I read the scriptures properly, God is going to lead you into situations where you can do nothing else other than trust in him. And they will be some of the hardest and some of the best times of your life. And secondly, know that God will never lead you to a place where his grace will not be sufficient to sustain you. He knows our measure. He knows that we are just dust. He knows what we can take. And therefore it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. In verses 15 through 18, we see the way of escape. And it was through the Red Sea. Stand firm and then move out. Isn't that interesting? Stand firm and see the salvation of God and then move out and go out into the Red Sea by faith. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Stand firm and see the salvation of God and now get moving. As I said a moment ago, there's a time for prayer and then there's a time to march. And the time has come to march. God is going to use Moses' staff and he says, stretch out that staff and watch and see what I will do. Wow, that's some staff, isn't it? No, not at all. It was some God who commanded him to move that staff out over the water. He also tells Moses exactly what he's going to do. He said, you're going to get chased one more time. They're going to pursue you into the Red Sea. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will gain a final glory over them. So we've gotten up through verse 18. God willing, next week we'll have a chance to actually walk through the Red Sea with the water on the left and on the right by faith. And we will see what God will do. I'm Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.